and welcome to an episode of Root Node Podcast. I am joined today with Robert Miller. Thank you. And his two dogs, uh, Delphine and Sam. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks so much for letting me come over to your house today to bug you about soil. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm grand. Thank you for coming down and not making me go all the way to Cork. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, <laughs> Robert is a horticulturist and soil specialist. He's like I'm a, not a soil, soil savior. I'm interested in soil. I'm not. You have to do a degree to be a soil specialist. You did a degree in, in horticulture, okay. not in soil science. Well, I don't know anybody that knows as much about soil as you do, or is as passionate as you are. So maybe I should tell a story about how we. Oh my God, Delphi. Um, um. So how we met, basically, I think it was like two or three years ago now um I don't know if it was a meetup or something but I rep- I responded to an ad online basically some guy was it ha- Andrew yeah is that his name uh, yeah. I can't I can't remember the details but he had like an indoor container urban farm, farm or something urban he calls farm. it yeah, yeah. And I was really into that at the time. So we went met up like there's a big crowd of us that just went to um this pub in the north of Dublin and this guy was like pitching us his idea where we were going to volunteer in his indoor um his container grove situation. I thought he was trying to get ideas out of us. I thought oh, that was the point. Is that what it was? Yeah, that's why he was trying to get us to discuss everything. Okay, nothing ever transpired. I thought it no. was like, he was a major chancer anyway. I don't know if that never transpired. I, 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 I liked him. You liked him? Yeah, he was yeah. great. Oh yeah, of course. He's like He was like a capitalist hippie in like a capitalist and hippie's clothing. I don't know. He was a really nice guy. In fairness, anyone that's interested in plants and growing is cool in my books. Anyone who grows mushrooms is cool in my book. Oh, that yeah, shit is he hard. Was growing the mushrooms yeah oh yeah what are the name of those mushrooms that grow inside those I um was doing oysters, oysters. Yeah, yeah 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 you can do lots of different types inside yeah actually oh yeah don't you remember that manual i shouldn't be hating on him i dream he had this like whole manual on indoor growing mushrooms that was pretty cool actually yeah well anyway um yeah so you d- we were all like posers there in our clean clothes and jeans and but you came I think from like placement in the botanical gardens and you were wearing like your waterproof duds and uh had like a plant so then I was like all right okay I think this guy probably knows a thing or two about plants and then pretty much that's how I met you so I read some books recently um about soil and soil health um major one being soil by matthew evans and then this other one the soil will save us by Kristen olsen but i really recommend the soil um one by matthew evans and i really think this is like the biggest issue of our time now um soil health and everything Robert has just ran out to get a book. Oh, a soil owner's manual. Okay, how to restore and min- you have so many books. You have like a whole bookcase of books. Um, oh, I have books everywhere. I have like, I have a garage full of books in my mom's house and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I I I like your bookshelf. Well, anyway, um, so. I thought I would consult you about soil and I had some questions. I made some questions in a document which I sent to you and you replied with like some uh, essays. I just didn't want to read the questions. (laughs) Well, anyway, you wrote some essays which we're going to discuss today. um, They're titled... 
the soul of the earth, the land is on drugs, the war on the land, mulch for survival, and then the last one is eco rant, what is to be undone. Yeah, a lot of those titles are just like placeholders. <laughs> They're so good. I think, I think it's the amazing. soul of the earth is going to stay as a title. Yeah. And the war on the land is going to stay as a title. That one's my favorite. I can't wait to discuss about that. Okay, so the soul of the earth. Um, I don't know where to start off with it. Like, how do you see the soil as the soul of the earth? Well, I mean, the words are literally connected. Like you go back, they have into etymology. They have the same root. And the soil is the soul of the earth because all life comes from the soil and all life ends in the soil, at least on land. The ocean has its own story going on. But... And the title really is just trying to make the point that if we don't care for the soil, everything will collapse. This is the the core of the issue right here. Okay. And we have a case study for that. You actually use this case study of the dust bowl. So... Well, that's the case study that always gets used for soil. Because it is well documented and very full of imagery okay yeah so maybe we can talk a bit about that because i'd actually never heard about that before until i read it have you read the grapes of wrath no i haven't you need to read the grapes of wrath okay seriously it's a a contender for the best novel ever published in my opinion it's set in the dust bowl farmers being tractored off their land by big business going over to california looking for work it's Oh, wait, that's what one of your essays is on, isn't it? The yeah. iron one? Dying, under, Dying iron. under iron. That was about chapter five of The Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, okay, okay. But if so, you're interested in the dust ball, that's where you go. Okay, The Grapes of Wrath, I will be sure to check it out. Um, okay, so who was Hugh Hammond Bennett and what did he see uh, back in the 1930s, I think it was? I'm not sure who he was originally. But he was the founder of the Soil Conservation Service, which was a flagship policy of FDR, basically in response to the Dust Bowl to try and promote no-till and cover crops and all the different kind of approaches to farming that will stop the soil turning into dust and flying away and start bringing it back to life. Okay, okay. Um... So he talks about like, I it's it's just amazing to think about like before what the indigenous people were doing before the Europeans settled there, um how uh how they were preserving the soil just naturally like they were so much more in tune with the earth and um the land and before you say quote unquote the yoke of monoculture crop production, um was going so. Well, you can make a pretty interesting comparison. So, right now, you have a situation where huge areas of land are dedicated to growing corn and soy on rotation. Just corn or just soy, as far as the eye can see. Land gets tilled every year, gets left bare, gets sprayed with whatever. And then, all of that then goes to feed these cattle crammed together in these massive feedlots that frankly are designed after concentration camps and are pooling up all of their shit so it's going and polluting rivers and causing eutrophication in dead zones. But the problem is they have separated the different factors of production instead of integrating them. So if you go back to the Great Plains before 1492, the different tribes there, they mostly made their living off bison. And so... When people describe what 
A lot of people think of America before the Europeans as primeval forest, but that's not true. That's just because disease went ahead of the Europeans and killed so many people that the land which was being managed as prairie reverted back to forest before the Europeans got there. But this prairie land is known as the tall grass prairies. The grass was taller than people. Not joking, it was six foot high, more than that. Beautiful lush soil just caused by huge herds of bison, what's called mob grazing. They go in a huge herd, they eat a bit of the grass, they trample a lot of it, they shit and they move on. And they leave a nice mulch of grass on the soil, a nice fertility bomb of shit. And millennia and millennia of that made the most beautiful lush, some of the most beautiful lush soils in the whole world that actually the foundation of the United States as a world power in a lot of ways is based on the mining of this soil and basically the destruction of it. Yeah, so they had bison back then, which are like big oxen kind of cattle they're type buffalo. things, aren't they? Buffalo. Okay, yeah. they're buffalo. And uh, we drove them extinct, did we? Did they go extinct? Yeah. They, yeah. Well, they're not completely extinct, yeah. but they got haunted to the... F- point where they weren't a landscape feature anymore okay okay so yeah okay Uh, and they went the same way as the people who managed them they're not quite extinct but yeah yeah bad things were done yeah so yeah i really like what you say that soil is the foundation of all life and that all life originates and ends in the soil and you have all these amazing quotes sprinkled in from like Karl marx and plato and some other guy pliny and This Karl Marx one says, capitalism disturbs the circulation of matter between man and the soil. And uh, you say how it's like um, really intertwined with the rise and fall of civilizations. So I think my favorite quote from that piece is the FDR quote, the nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. Yeah, that's so good, isn't it? Yeah. This it this is mental. Like, why aren't we talking about the soil health? It's uh, like people are waking up to it. Yeah, I I, I know very gradually. Not, well, we'll get to that. A the, lot of it is just ignorance. Because you can see what happens above, but you can't see what happens below. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there's just as much happening below, but we're so ignorant about it. Like, how could we? How can we know? It's like how the depths of the ocean, like it's like an alien world to us. We don't see it. Same with the soil. Like, what could be more alien than fungi? Yeah, and this other... You also say that terms like soil erosion and soil degradation do no justice to the reality they represent and that earth genocide would be more appropriate. And I was like, whoa, that's hard-hitting, but it's so true, isn't it? It, I came up with that as a slogan years ago. Soil erosion is just a dignified name for earth genocide. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's so... Yeah, we just kind of, like, we just explain the problems away, like, with these, like, clinical terms, as you say. It's just, like, oh, it's, you know, soil erosion. But no, actually, there's a whole, like, stack of dominoes that we've set in action, and we're we're not at all getting to the root cause of the issue. Well, the point there is, I think... I think this mentality is changing already, but it's very important that we need to change our understanding of the soil from just a reservoir for inputs and nutrients for plants, which is a very small part of what it is, but primarily the soil is an ecosystem. And when we start seeing it as a living community that is the foundation of all other living communities, then we can start understanding the issues and seeing what we need to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So... 
They Roosevelt signed the Soil Conservation Act in 1935. Um as they saw that there was lots of drought and there was this process of dustification. Did it rain dust? Like, what well, was there going was, on? There was a major cloud of dust that, ba- dust that basically did a tour over the whole country. Oh, really? And Hugh Hammond Bennett, actually, he planned his speech before Congress about the Soil Conservation Service. He planned it for when a cloud of dust would darken the sky above Washington. What? And that cloud of dust came from, like, the Great Plains, which is, like, a thousand kilometers away or something. My geography is terrible, so I could be way off, but, like, it <laughs> came from a long, long way. What does a cloud of dust look like? Like, you think, like, it must look so different from... Uh, imagine the sky goes dark and the air gets heavy with grit. Have you ever been in a sandstorm? Mm, I don't think so. Think of it as a sandstorm. Yeah, that will make it make imagine. more sense. Yeah. <laughs> But this was basically all the soil because the soil was plowed up and left bare and then a drought came. So all the soil disintegrated, disincorporated and just blew away as dust in the wind. So imagine a lot of really fine soil particles just blocking out the sky. Mm. That's dust. That's so That's what bleak, it looked like it? when like Hugh a- Hammond Bennett gave his speech <laughs> about why they need to found the Soil Conservation Service. So I mean, as far as political showmanship goes, that's tier one. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, I don't know when this happened. I don't know roughly the timeline of when, like, the European settlers came in and uprooted the indigenous people and then we, like, dug up all the grass. Where where did this, like... Who originally thought it was a good idea to have monoculture? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know you the don't really... Yeah. The yeah. people who are like, how can we get the most profit from the least investment? From a purely economic standpoint, monoculture makes a lot of sense. But that's why we need ecology as well as economy. Because mm-hmm, ecology mm-hmm. will tell you that monoculture makes no sense. It is a highly vulnerable ecosystem with absolutely no resilience. And it's deplete, depleting the soil. Yeah. Just a magnet for pests. It's... The economy works, but the ecology doesn't. And without ecology, there's no economy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in one of your essays, you were like, oh, um, the problem is framed as economy versus ecology when, okay, yeah, we do need e- economy to eat food, but the ecology is like the most important part and we need to find a way to integrate these things. And Well, it's a bit, of a, it's a, bit of a cliche quote, but I always go back to this one, try holding your breath while counting your money. <laughs> That's a good one, actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you can't eat the money. Um, well, you can. It just doesn't have a very high nutrient value. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I suppose. Okay. So that was in like the nineteen thirties uh, in America. There was this, and that was also a response to the Great Depression. So it was a job creation scheme where they took unemployed people and paid them to go and do work investing in the soil, mm-hmm, which. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, did that they? seems okay. like a bit of a no-brainer for right now just saying yeah 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 okay so at least so yeah i mean we're almost 100 years on so yeah i guess like history is kind of cyclical like that but um, this has been going on since so this, since hierarchical civilizations but that's like so mental that they recognize the soil was in 1935 but like we're still on the decline like it's they nothing rec- they rec- nothing has changed has they it? recognized it was 
fucked before Christ. Like, look at what Plato, look how Plato oh, described yeah. Attica. What was it? I, the I land is all nothing but skin and bone. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, he says the writ. Okay, more than 2,000 years before Plato and the soils of his native Attica, no idea where that is. The natural That's fr- the region that includes Athens. Okay, okay. The natural fertility of which had raised up Athens, okay, never mind, as a regional power, had been devastated by deforestation and excessive cultivation. He wrote that the rich, soft soil has all run away, leaving the land nothing but skin and bone. Meanwhile, in Rome, Pliny the Elder surveyed the, surveyed the state of the soils in the early imperial period and concluded that the large estates have been the ruin of Italy and are now proving the ruin of the provinces too. Well, I think he may- that more in the political sense that do you know the story of like the Lex Agraria and all that oh no please enlighten me okay so the foundation of Rome was the yeoman farmer the small independent farmer who produced their surpluses that fed the empire and were the backbone of military service that expanded the empire but there kind of came a tipping point in my opinion after the Punic Wars, where Rome had become so rich and so powerful that the rich people, the senatorial elite, basically got too much power in their hands and they started accumulating all the land themselves. And, you know, the yeoman farmers went off to war and died, or they came back and they couldn't afford to keep running the land because after they're off in war for 10 years not harvesting they had no money and blah 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 so all the hands kind of ended up in the hands of the senatorial elite or the new equestrian elite and they were run by slaves and all the old farmers went into Rome and they caused trouble as the urban proletariat and kind of all this so I think when Pliny the elder was saying that he more so meant it was the ruin of Rome by the oppression that the great landowners were putting on the country. But I mean, the oppression of the land goes hand in hand with the oppression of the people who work the land. Yeah. Um, Okay, you say it is by now well known that no civilization can survive for long while degrading its soil and today our civilization encompasses the whole earth there is nowhere for us to turn in search of fresh soils to devour so okay knowing that we've been like treating our soil like dirt for a long time now now fast forward to today we have this food and agriculture organization the FAO in 2015 they did a global assessment of the world's soils and they said one third are severely degraded um, a projection of uh, 90% to be severely degraded by 2050 75 million tons are eroded every year from agricultural land alone um, yeah I, yeah so this not only oh, we're losing the soil it's like that's the most insane thing to me I only learned about this recently like the topsoil it's like where is it oh it's just beyond words some of it is running off into the rivers some of it is being blown off into the air but a lot of it is just it's like the old thing with the enclosures the same people are on the same land but now they're different people it's 
actually that's from a great book called Change in the Village by George Sturt that I highly recommend. One of the first works of oral history ever published. Okay. But um, one sec, let me get back to the point I was trying to make. Change in the Village. Um... So a lot of times with soil degradation, the soil is still there, but the life is gone. And so it can't act as soil anymore because the functions of soil the nutrient cycling, the water cycling, etc., etc., they are done by the life in the soil, by the bacteria, by the fungi, by the worms, but blah, blah, blah. And once the life in the soil is dead, then the soil cannot function as soil anymore. Okay. Then it's just an inert mass of rock and whatever, whatever and else. This is where the microbes come in. This is where yeah. I absolutely love. Um, so. Maybe we didn't understand, like, for so long. I, I think, okay, so let's get into the, maybe the land is on drugs, the war on the land kind of thing. So now we know that microbes have s- such, like, a f- play such a large function in our soils. Um, and we can study them, we can understand them. Whereas before, we, I guess we didn't really. But... So, like, one of the We've things I learned about... We've known about this for longer than people realise. Like, Charles Darwin spent the last 10 years of his life writing about worms. He was the one that proved that worms create topsoil. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the humus and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've known about this since at least Darwin, and I would make the case that a lot of what would be called TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, a lot of indigenous people, they might not have concepts of microbes, etc., but... They understand the basic principle of what's going on. That's how they've been able to survive for long enough to be called indigenous. Okay, okay. Yeah, so it's not a new thing by any means. It's it, we, the science we under- is new. Yeah, the science is new in terms of like understanding like the exudates and like the relate yeah. the intricate relationship between plants and microbes and stuff. We're only kind of now beginning to understand the real extent to the significance of that but like and an analogy to this is ecology in the 1950s 60s and 70s was this completely new science that was revolutionizing our understanding of not only our environment but our place in our environment i think today we're seeing the same thing with soil science absolutely okay so we can just break it down like climate change they're saying okay like humans are responsible and all this it's like okay well if we just protect the soil carbon can be stored in the soil like when they're planting trees like oh we're planting like 10 trees for every backpack you bought like that that's because the carbon from the trees is going to get stored in the soil is that correct well it depends a lot of tree planting schemes are actually greenwashing nonsense because they're just plantations of palm oil or whatever the fuck. And if it's a monoculture, it's not doing its job of putting carbon in the soil. Okay. But this point about climate change. So we have to understand, we all think about fossil fuels when we think about climate change. And that's fair because they're the big contributor. But one third of all of our legacy load of carbon emissions. Wait, so yes, we're back on. Okay, so... The soil can basically solve all our problems. The carbon, cl- the we won't get too much in the climate change thing now. We can we can get into that at the end. But I like, rem- I remember what I was saying though. Okay. That one okay. third of our legacy load of emissions originally came from organic matter in the soil that was oxidized after deforestation and tillage, and then turned into carbon dioxide and went into the atmosphere. 
which makes the point that when it comes to climate change, if there is going to be a solution, which I'm skeptical about, but if there is going to be a solution, then it's to put the carbon back in the soil where it belongs. Even the fossil fuels, they're old stores of carbon from the soil. And what it, we're carbon-based life forms. This thing about carbon is important. And all this organic carbon in the soil, what it represents is generations fucking eons of generations that have lived and died and their remains have gone and been stored in the soil and that is the basis for all life to come and what we've done with fossil fuels with what i would call extractive agriculture is we have hacked into these stores of the carbon from generations and eons and whatever of living and dying and we've belched them out into the atmosphere where they no longer can provide for the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, very well said. Um, I love that, like, we've hacked the carbon, the Earth's carbon, and we're just, yeah, like, exploiting it and not. We've. It's like nature has this amazing cycle, this intricate web of events and stuff for handling everything, and we've just thrown a spanner in the works and just, like, just jack, like, absolutely messed up everything. So, you can't give ourselves too much credit. The Earth has survived mass extinction events before. Exactly, I know. I we know. We fucked up everything the for soil, ourselves, yeah, and that's how it, we have to look at exactly. it. Exactly. Oh, I'm, yeah. I've, I'm not at all fearful for Mother Earth or like the I, Earth. Like, I, I, I think for all the species that will yeah, go extinct. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, yeah. I think. <sighs> but humans, in the end, we do have. Do we even deserve to be saved? Like at this point, like that's. I mean, well, if we do, it's just, we it's will fun deserve. To hash out the... If we do deserve to be saved, we will deserve to be saved by saving ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a great quote, one of my favorite science fiction books, *The Dispossessed* by Ursula Le Guin. Oh, I love that. Ursula Le Guin. I've actually read that one. It's free. I think I recommended that to you in the first place. Did you? Place. Oh, probably. I remember. Yeah, please but, recommend me more books. I, that parable of the sour. I need. I need oh, more I, books. Yeah. But in in the dispossessed, one of the things she says: free your mind of the idea of earning, the idea of deserving, and you will at last be able to think clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Delphine also agrees with that one. All right, we're back. Delphine needed to pee. Um. Hopefully, they're going to be settled now. It's all. Yeah, your guard, back garden is amazing. Anyway, we Thank were just, you. I was just admiring your chilies and you were saying that real compost that you buy in the shops shouldn't be allowed to be sold. Why is that? No, it should be allowed to be sold. Or it like, should be allowed to call it compost. Because compost is a proce- product of a biological process of decomposition. Whereas the commercially produced compost, they just turn it so much that it's not broken down by the biology. All the biology is dead because they get it too hot and they turn it too frequently. It's broken down by the actual mechanical process of turning it. So some of the stuff you buy in the shop is okay. I think I won't advertise any brands, but there's a few brands I know that I'd get and I think they're acceptable. But in general, commercial compost production it's only half compost because it's only half there's no real the point of compost is to put biology into the soil and they kind of sterilise it don't they the heat kills some other kind of thing as far as you know compost is supposed to get hot enough that it kills off everything and then cool down and then the life comes back into it so that's normal it's just there's very little life in the commercial compost because yeah they tried to make it too fast a parable for a lot of things in the yeah, agricultural there's, there's system. Very little life in it, like that should be like. The... <laughs> uh, okay. Um, 
So probably one of my favorite of your essays was The Land is on Drugs, The War on the Land. Yes, I think that's called The War on the Land now. War on the Land, The Land is on Drugs was the original title, but... I so moved there was away kind of two that. titles, so I thought... The like, War on the Land is my own title. The, oh, the Land okay. is on Drugs is a rip-off from Talib Bio, okay. which is a really good food sovereignty organisation here in Ireland. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I was thinking, wow, that is such a good metaphor for <laughs> describing what's going on. Well, I mean, it makes sense because it's very much an addiction cycle that we have with chemicals when it comes to farming. Because, say... Say you have a problem with aphids, for example. Yes. You go and spray. The aphids die, but so do the ladybirds and the hoverflies and everything that eats the aphids. Well, after a certain point, the, they're going to start coming back, but the aphids are going to come back faster because that's how it works. They are prey. The predators will, can never bounce back as fast as their prey can. So the aphids are going to come and there's going to be absolutely nothing to control them because you killed all the ladybirds and the hoverflies and the lace wings and everything else when you sprayed. So they're going to absolutely multiply like crazy, do ridiculous damage. Now, if you just leave it, you might lose the crop or the crop will suffer. But in the long term, the ecosystem will balance itself out because the predators will come back in because nature never wastes a free meal. But what's going to happen is there's going to be a major aphid outbreak and you're going to notice it and you're going to spray again. Mm-hmm. So the, the predators are never going to come back and yeah. the aphids are only going to develop tolerance to the chemicals. You have to start using different chemicals, higher doses. It's really just like drug addiction. And it's the same with fertilizer because when... So you, you brought up root exudates. About a third of all of the carbon that plants produce through photosynthesis, they leak out of their roots into the soil to feed the fungi, to feed the bacteria that brings them water, that brings them other nutrients. But if you, just, if you make the soil flush with fertilizer, the plant will just turn off the tap of root exudates because why would you waste a third of your carbon when you can get the nutrients yeah, anyway? The plant gets lazy. Yeah, it doesn't nurture those relationships. Uh, yeah, between. and then they die off. And then the minute you forget to put fertilizer on the land, the plant is starving. And and the fertilizer, okay, you're putting on NPK. Yeah, so fertilizer. So the plants turn off the tap of root exudates when the soil is flush with fertilizer and the soil life dies off. So even if you get the fertilizer on at the right time all the time to feed the plants, it's still not a balanced diet. It's just NPK. There's no probably not going to have boron you're probably not going to have magnesium you're probably not there's like 20 different micronutrients that plants rely on in trace amounts as well as the macronutrients we know of but um so anything that's deficient is a limiting factor so what that means is that say everything is perfect you have wonderful levels of everything except one thing the growth is limited by how much it's going to be stunted by that one thing because that is going to make everything else unable to function. So when we're fertilizing, we're not giving a full balanced diet to the plants. It's not when nutrients are held by soil life, they are there waiting until the plants need them. And as soon as the plants need them, they can access them. When you put fertilizer into the soil, it just washes out in the rain, goes into the river and kills the fucking river with algae blooms. So you really just have this... The best analogy I like to give for fertilizer is like living on a steady diet of cocaine. Yikes. 
You get lots of energy, but no nourishment. <laughs> yeah, so this monoculture combined with um, dumping all the fertilizers on. Yeah, and maybe just to prelude all this, the intention for the nitrogen fertilizers was born out of um, uh, Fritz Haber, who designed... who just did chemical warfare chemical research for world war Two, and he world uh, war one and he invented like uh chlorine gas and cyclone and cyclone b was used in world war Two. yes well um, with so the haber bosch process in my opinion was both the greatest and worst thing that ever happened to humanity because most of us who are here on earth would not exist if it wasn't for the haber bosch process the amount of nitrogen that it was able to pull out of the air like a good proportion of the nitrogen in your body comes from that mm-hmm. like, we wouldn't be able to feed so many people but we also wouldn't be able to wreck the land so fast so it's one of those cases where the best is also the worst yeah and vice so- versa huge food production which allows to um, support like a growing population which but it also causes a growing population how? because the way it works in ecology is if the resources exist the population will grow to match the resources now if you're unsustainably producing an extremely large amount of resources the population will grow to match that well eventually you're not going to be able to anymore but the population is still going to be there What's that going to look like? Well, our lives are going to be bleak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so chemical weapons were rebranded as pesticides and tanks were transformed into tractors. So So this was a specific moment after World War II where I always used to love that thing in the Bible, beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift sword against other nations, nor shall they learn war anymore. Beautiful sentiment, but sometimes the plowshare is worse than the sword. Think of all the damage that is done by plowing. So in this case, the nitrogen was... Massive amounts of nitrogen were being used to produce bombs for World War II. Massive amount of chemicals were being produced for chemical warfare and, and frankly, far worse things than fucking chemical warfare. Um, lots of tanks were being produced. And at the end of World War II, these were all highly profitable systems of production. The powerful nations of the world had their economies entirely oriented around them. And frankly, they didn't want to give it up. So that is when what we call the industrialization of agriculture really took off. This is when the type of farm that we see and we know today really comes out of this moment after World War II, where they're trying to sell all this weaponry to the farmers, essentially. Yeah, so. And then in the 1960s, that gets brought out to the majority world under, I think I described it as the Orwellian name of the Green Revolution. Yes. I go into that because the Green Revolution is very popular, but it's actually, in my opinion, a colossal failure. Yeah, you can go into that, please. So, the Green Revolution is always cited as having saved the world from massive hunger due to the overpopulation in the second half of the 20th century. But I'm like, okay, A. Hunger has increased since then, so, um, what? Mm-hmm. B, there were very real gains made against hunger. They mostly happened in China, which never embraced the Green Revolution. The country that embraced the Green Revolution most thoroughly was India, and in- hunger in India has massively increased since the Green Revolution. And just... It was a really unjust, destructive process. It... It was involved all the normal capitalist stories of the farmers lost their land, 
the price of inputs went through the roof, the dependence on inputs went through the roof, what the farmers were being paid at the farm gate went way down. So you had this massive increase in poverty, you had this massive increase in pesticide use, in fertilizer use, in tillage, you had this massive destruction of ecosystems at the same time. And I don't think it's fair to say that the Green Revolution fed the world. It helped to feed the world along with many other things, but... I think farmers are beginning to snap out of that. Like, I love reading stories where farmers ran out of money and they weren't able to afford the fertilizer to put on their land. And then they noticed, oh, um, the crops were doing so much better and they had such a better yield rather than Yeah, unfortunately, paying. a more common story is they drank the pesticide because, you know, all the debt and all the stress, farmers have the highest suicide rates in the world. Really? I thought, yeah, yeah okay. Like, this Gosh. is epidemic in India. Speaking about India and the Green yeah, Revolution, yeah, they get yeah. f- they get free for, they get a lot of free pesticides off the government, and that's about all they get for mm-hmm. free. They don't get a all lot of subsidies get, or anything. They get them for free, right? Yeah. Because of these Green Revolution policies, and mostly they're just kind of drinking them because, you know, imagine, imagine you own a farm and that farm has been handed down through generations of your family. And now you're going so deeply into debt that you're going to lose the land. How could you deal with that? Mm-hmm. And just to put, I think it was over 200,000 farmer suicides in India since the 90s. Just to put this into context, the majority of people in India are Hindu. In the Hindu religion, if you commit suicide, then you, that's really bad karma. And in the next life, you become something really crappy. So literally, life is so bad for farmers in the third world. They're willing to suffer any kind of misery in the afterlife just to make it stop now. Wow. The poorest people in the world, the hungriest people in the world are farmers and farm laborers. They think it's their dharma to suffer on the farm, but actually it's, yeah, that's been self-inflicted through the system. Well, karma brings up a whole... Other bunch of questions. I don't think this. I don't think theology is the way to go with this podcast right now. But it's not just India where this is happening. I've seen like videos online, you know, where they're like racing their tractors and stuff. There's a very good documentary called Nero's Guests that follows the work of an Indian journalist called Palagumi Sainath, who is the one who really broke the story. Okay. On an international level about the spade of farmer suicides and they must be having serious problems with drought over there as well I can only imagine Um, speaking of the future being bleak (laughs) yeah I know well there is a solution we will like get to that in a bit your your proposed solution but first I want to like drag out all the negatives just because the the solution exists doesn't mean we're gonna do it (laughs) yeah well Oh, well, the solution... Okay, so from what I understand from you saying about how this is like a common thread um, of losing quality of the soil in the farm um, due to being uh, being imposed by imperial powers and stuff, it's decentralised farming is the way to go. And also a fact that you mentioned in one of your essays, well, which... Well, the feudal system was decentralised. Decentralised oh. is the way forward, but it's not enough on its own. Okay. We also need... What is the feudal system? Is that the... The medieval system of serfdom. And oh, where they like a... split up the farms into smaller little no, it, segments? it was the... So it came as an aftermath of the Roman Empire. So after the Roman Empire collapsed, all the large like estates, uh, um, all the, what are they called? All the latifundia. Okay. Gosh, that's a big word. Yeah, well, it's an important word because it basically is the model that we follow now. It's the plantation agriculture. So more than anything else, latifundia is the problem that we fight against. That is 
the number one cause of human exploitation and ecological destruction. But anyway, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, these big estates basically became a law unto themselves. So the feudal system works with the domain of the Lord. His land is kind of under... He can do whatever he wants with it, and then he has to raise knights to fight for the king. And It's a very decentralized system, but it's also a very hierarchical one. So yes, we... Our agricultural system is ridiculously centralized. I think three companies control more than half the market for chemicals that the farmers are buying and very small companies, amount of companies control the market for purchasing from farmers, probably less than three in most commodities, buying from what, 600 million farmers or whatever the fuck. Yeah. So we have a highly centralized agricultural system, or I suppose I should say we have a highly centralized food system, and that is one of the big problems. So yes, we need decentralization, but just because something is decentralized doesn't mean it will be good. We also need liberation. But actually, this is one question I was going to ask you. How are farmers on smaller size farms, these family farms, you say, producing 70 to 80% of the world's food? Because that's most of the world's farms. They are just like go, that. Go, like, there's think, not- about, think about Africa. The African small farmer is well known. Africa is a big place. It's like yeah, a billion yeah. people. I think India is all small well, farmers. India is like a big farming place. in America, though, I think like vast, open, like, yeah. well, like everything, massive everything fields. Everything is bigger in America. Okay, yeah, this is all for corn syrup anyways. But like, a lot of who Ameri- cares? But American agriculture... This is going to sound really harsh, but American agriculture doesn't make sense. It's so heavily subsidized that it just... It doesn't What's their work. system like? I don't know. Well, there are a lot of good farmers in America. Like, Gabe Brown is one of the best farmers in the world. Okay, it, never heard of him before. He's an influential regenerative farmer from America. There's lots of good farmers in America, but their agricultural system is so skewed by subsidies, by corporate consolidation, that they have a much more dysfunctional food system than a lot of the rest of the world. Like... What what's the what would how would a corporate incentive be for a farmer in America like to use a certain brand like use a certain type of seed use a certain well, brand? Well, it would be more so. Okay, let's think about chicken farmers because the whole former cotton belt of slavery in the South is now to a large extent the chicken belt, where the farmers are essentially serfs with these warehouses owned by Tyson, owned by whoever else. They have no choice but to sell to Tyson. They're in this relationship where they're trapped with a single buyer that controls the market or a small group of buyers that control the market. And because the regulations are so much lighter in America than they are in the EU, there's a bigger problem with monopoly. There's a bigger problem with abusive practices. So that's where really where the incentives come from. You don't do what Tyson wants you to do. Good luck growing chicken. Okay. Okay, so... Is there, okay, yeah, is the situation global? Is there anyone that escapes this treatment of the land? Um, There are regenerative farmers everywhere. Okay, so the organic movement in the West started when Sir Albert Howard was sent over in the 30s to India as part of the British colonial Raj to teach the backward peasants how to farm efficiently. He got there and was like, wow, they are so far advanced of anything we're doing. Wrote about all the techniques they were using, and that's how the organic movement started. Farmers have all... Who is this? Hannah... Sir Albert Howard. He wrote an agricultural testament, which was one of the big early publications of the organic movement. But the point I'm trying to make is 
there always have been and always will be lots of farmers who are doing it better. The problem is the incentives of the system right now go against that Mm -hmm. because if you invest in the land, that is money you are spending now for return you are getting years in the future. But if you are deep in debt, if you are losing money every year while you're farming, if you are being screwed every which way like the farmers are, they can't fucking afford it. Like, what do you expect of them? Yeah. The yeah. Farmer, a lot of environmentalists will tend to blame farmers, and this annoys me, because frankly, what farmer doesn't want to leave the land to their children in a better condition than they got it? Yes. The farmers have been taking care of the countryside, unpaid for generations. They know what needs to be done and they know how to do it. They're just fucked and they have to make the decision that brings in money now or they go under. And that is the root of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So something that kind of opened my eyes was like productivity is measured like per isn't per hectare it's per like soil or per, per um crop output yeah per f- if you so if you actually measure total productivity of all crops per hectare regenerative agriculture and agroecology tend to be more productive than industrial or extractive agriculture but if you measure the amount of corn or the amount of potatoes the amount of whatever else you can get per hectare obviously planting nothing but that over the hectare is the most productive you're going to get Overall, no, it's not productive. But in terms of a narrow-minded focus on a single crop, yes, it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is another big problem. So, yeah. With short-term, simple-minded, monoculture, monopolist thinking. And this is something that I always get my uh, cogs going, is how could we efficiently tra- like uh, transform over the word escapes transition to a... Uh, like this agroecological method of farming, you know, well, like how could there's um, a whole lot that we need to do to organic, achieve that. You know, there's, there's a whole lot. Well, corporate organic isn't necessarily so much yeah, better. Yeah, th- that's what I was. Th- yeah, we, I wanted to get into is that. Til- yeah, is tilling to remove the weeds worse than spraying herbicides to remove the weeds? Two of one, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah, but there. There are a lot of things we can do to make this transition possible. But there's one thing we need to do first, and that is three simple words. Break the bottleneck. There is a bottleneck in the world food system. If you imagine the food system as an hourglass, at the top of the hourglass, or I suppose at the bottom of the hourglass, you have the farmers. You have what? What are there? Two, three billion farmers in the world, including farm workers. So at the bottom of the hourglass, you have that. In the middle, you have the companies that are purchasing from them. Across all sectors, you probably don't have more than 50 of these big companies. In each, for one commodity, you might have 500 million farmers selling to two companies. And then on the other hand, you have 7, 8 billion people as consumers. So you have this tiny little bottleneck in the middle of the food system that are these big companies. They control the supply chain for inputs, for chemicals, for tractors, for fuel, for blah, blah, blah. And on the other end, the ones who purchase, who will buy from the farmers, who will buy the finished products. And that includes the supermarkets as well as like the meat packers and all that. But unless you break this bottleneck, this small group of companies, they control the whole food system they control all the decisions that are made they control the incentives they control everything about it and the thing is we aren't used to thinking about corporations as stalinist tyranny 
but they are because in these companies there is a small group of people at the top the shareholders who own the company and all the decisions are made for them there's another small group of people the board of directors who make all the decisions on behalf of the shareholders and the shareholders vote to fire them if they're not happy but beyond that the companies actually have a legal obligation to maximize the profit for their shareholders above all other considerations if they don't do it they can not only be fired they can be pursued for criminal charges so we have these massive powerful tyrannical institutions dedicated solely to enriching the very few that own them that have complete control of our food system and unless we do something about that we won't be able to start doing the many necessary steps that we can do to promote agroecology to transition to regenerative agriculture to start building soil and rebuilding ecosystems and producing food at the same time First, we have to break the bottleneck. Then we can start having a democratic discussion about what should we do. So it's really clear that we need a vibe shift from industrial to conservation agriculture. Well, conservation agriculture doesn't go far enough because a few hundred years ago, I'd say, yeah, conservation agriculture is great. But once you have destroyed an ecosystem, it's not good enough to conserve what's left. You have to rebuild it. So we need regenerative agriculture. And the term we need to think about is a paradigm shift. Yes. There's a report that came out um, from, I think it's called the International Panel of Experts on Food Systems. And this report was called From Uniformity to Diversity, a paradigm shift to something or other. But that's what we need. We need a paradigm shift from uniformity to diversity. Paradigm shift meaning like completely different uh, way we think about well, agriculture and implementing implementing it. The pa- your paradigm is like your apparatus for understanding something. So if you have a paradigm shift for how you view a particular issue, it's not you're not changing what you do. You're changing how you think about the issue. That's what it means. Yeah, but there from from reading your essays, it says that. Like in the UN General Assembly in 2011, there was a report by this guy, Olivier de Schutter. And he's one of the people from who authored that report. Okay, the one, the one that you just yeah. talked about? He was at the time the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right Rapporteur, to Food. Yeah, yeah. Agroecology and the Right to Food. Yeah, gotcha. He says, conventional farming relies on expensive inputs, fuels climate change, and is not resilient to climatic shocks. So that was like over 10 years ago. So we know, we know like it's a sinking ship. We just need to, like, how can we topple these um, corporations or um, like... I don't know, like, just get them, make them the good guys again. One one thing we can do is, so, under our laws, corporations have personhood. They have the rights of people, but what they don't have is the responsibility of people. You can't jail a fucking company. So I think corporations that break the law should be held criminally responsible. And one possible way of doing that is what I would call disincorporation. A corporation that has been found guilty of major violation of the laws will be dissolved and the shareholders will lose all their money. And that's that. All their money will go to paying fucking pensions for all the workers who lose their jobs as a result of that. That's one way. But frankly, unless there's a complete social revolution, none of this is happening because they control politics, they control the economy, they control the media, they control everything. 
Like, I don't have a lot of hope here. I have a lot of hope that it's not another world is possible. There's only one fucking world that we know of that we can live on. It's another way of living is possible. I have complete hope of that. I just don't think we're going to be able to disrupt all the entrenched powers that be in time to make the changes that are necessary. Mm-hmm. But even like the methods of farming are so embedded, like for personally speaking, okay, um, I left a bed empty in my polytunnel and I was like, okay, I'll just leave it like that. I'll leave it, I'll leave it bare and no, that so will... green manure. Huh? So green manure, put in facilia or buckwheat or clover yeah, or all of them or more. Yeah, but my thinking was like, okay, well, if I just leave it like that, that'll preserve the nutrients because I was thinking like the plants will like just suck up all the nutrients what? like straws. But actually to retain the nutrients in the soil, you should have a plant there. Well, yeah, because if you don't have living root and the weeds will come up, the weed, nature will solve this problem for you by putting the weeds in the soil. Yeah. So if, but if you don't have living roots in the soil, you have no root exudates to feed the soil life and the soil life will die. I think we need more education about this thing. It's like, this is why I wanted to talk to you because, you know, I read these books and I get all worked up about it, but then like, I just get swept up in my day-to-day job and things, time goes past and then I, my passion like ebbs and- That's not just you. (laughs) That's pretty universal. Yeah, I got bigger fish to fry, but like the soil is the biggest fish to fry at the moment, you know? Yeah. But it's not just the soil, it's all interconnected. It's like... I like to use the analogy of the Gordian knot. Yes, can you please go into that? Because I had to look up the definition of what that was. Just basically, it's, it's possibly apocryphal story about Alexander the Great. That this guy, he had this knot that he went around being like, I'll give you whatever money if you can untie this knot, it's impossible to untie. And Alexander the Great cut it with a sword and was like, give me my money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the point is, I like that phrase, the Gordian knot, to describe the situation we're in, because it's this knot of all different factors that seems impossible to untie. And also you can go further with that analogy and talk about the Gordian noose. Oh. <laughs> Grim, I like it. <laughs> so we have all like a, a hypothetical Gordian noose around our necks. Yep, that we have no idea how to untie. And may even be yeah. impossible. Oh, when I Google it, it says a problem insoluble in its own terms, so something impossible to solve. But yeah, well, even I find it so fascinating thinking about the history. Like, how did we get here? How did we like start the psychology behind the way we treat the soil at the moment? And it's just you. It's so ancient and old, and even like the the plowing no, championships. There's, there's so a... let me just finish this point. Like the plowing championships is like this big thing in Ireland. Like people get out with their tractors and they plow the soil and they just like rev their tractors up and it's great crack. But like you're destroying the mycelial networks in the soil. I thought plowing... until recently like that that was good that you the ser- soil needed air and plowing stuff. Plowing doesn't have to be bad. Yeah, you're causing damage to the soil. But the soil is a resilient ecosystem. You can cause damage in a way that it will recover and then you can actually cause damage and it will be a net benefit. But when you're constantly tilling and when you're leaving the soil bare after tilling, that's a big problem Mm -hmm. because then you're killing everything that lives in the soil and you're not giving them a chance to recover. But the point I wanted to make is there's a very good book 
about what you're talking about by David Montgomery called Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. Okay. Looking at the history of civilization and soil erosion. Amazing. So many and books. And he's great. He actually, he's wrote a bunch. He is a, actually a MacArthur fellow. Like he got given, he's a geologist who got given a MacArthur Genius Grant for his work in soil. He has his other great book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, where he goes around the world interviewing farmers who are doing it right and finding out what we can do but he has come out with a new book recently that's due to be published it's either just been published or due to be published very soon that i'm very excited for called what your food ate they published with someone else b janet i can't remember i think speaker andre beaker maybe but yeah just looking at the soil life and how important it is for the nutrient composition of our food. Yes. What the food yes. ate. Thank you for bringing this up. Now, this is the thing. Nobody escapes this. You think you might think you're far removed from it. And maybe this is a problem for farmers or something. No, this is a problem for everyone. The quality of your food is well, being this, this impeded is, because this of this. This is a big part of the reason why obesity is such a problem because the average food has at least a third less at least a third less nutrients than it did 50 years ago, probably more than half the nutrients that it did. Yeah, and probably yeah. less than half the nutrients it did 50 years ago. And that means to get the nutrients you need, you have to eat twice as much food. But this is also a problem with agric- current agriculture. The focus is on... Um, Calorie production. And like... Uh, yield whereas like there's not a there's no focus on the soil or the nutrient density of the food it's like okay we'll produce more but actually it's less nutrient dense but like okay you've got a bigger stalk on your barley but there's less nutrients so you do need to focus on yield that's pretty crucial yeah but it needs to be a a multiple bottom line yeah it's like i would be happy yeah like come on the obesity rates in the world like i think we could do eating slightly less but having more nutrient-dense food. I think that would be a good, like, tie-off. Well, there's plenty of people that could do with eating a lot more. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. There's a lot of hunger in the world. I thought you were going to say there's plenty of people that could do with eating a lot less. There's plenty of people that could do with eating a lot more. Yes, yes. I don't think... I don't think most people understand the extent of hunger in the world. That's it, it, yeah. We're so dissonanced from it. Because when... The FAO collects statistics of it. They collect statistics of extreme starvation. But if you go and include malnutrition in the statistics, like, then you get an estimate from about, this was from about 10 or 15 years ago, so it's probably more now due to increased population. But you get an estimate that 36 million people die every year due to malnutrition and malnutrition-related causes. Well, that turns out to be a person every second. And we're probably exporting all the pro- the crops from their country to Europe or... Well, the poorest countries in the world all have one thing in common. Well, mostly they were former colonies, but th- that's not what I'm saying. They all have one thing in common, where they are dependent on the production of one or two primary commodities for the majority of their GDP. And the price of those commodities is controlled elsewhere. The value added comes in elsewhere. So they are, for the price they're being paid and for their essentially survival, they're at the complete mercy of the international markets. Look at Ethiopia. Ethiopia is completely dependent on coffee. Every time the price of coffee collapses, Ethiopia has a famine. And then we have live aid and whatever, and it's like, okay, break the bottleneck. There's a really good... There's a really good company that I like that came up with a concept called Fair Chain. Uh, 
where what they did, they went to Addis Ababa and they paid for a roasters to be built and they trained local people to run it and they employed them. So then more of the value added was staying in Ethiopia and they get to keep more of the profits created by coffee production. But the pro- but it's monoculture. It's this comparative advantage idea that England will produce wool and Portugal will produce wine and they'll trade amongst each other and everyone will benefit. Well, Portugal didn't benefit from that, so that tells you all you need to know. They weren't even a fucking colony. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sorry, I went a bit off the rails there. The eco rant. <laughs> I'm loving it, yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so this agroecology, this regenerative ecology, this alternative to industrial agriculture would be extremely beneficial to the needs of poor rural communities, increase soil quality, plant health, biodiversity, and uh, eliminate hunger and malnutri- malnutrition, which are this a function of economic and social problems, not production. Is this quoting Olivier de Schutter? Uh, Hilal oh, Elver yeah. from I 2015, she, an alternative to ag- yeah. industrial agriculture. She was the UN special rapporteur on the right to food after him. Yeah, yeah. It's cool that there is such a person appointed. Um, I mean, it's not like people listen to yeah, the UN. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, this really, it's so <laughs> on, on, underground. I never heard of it until you mentioned go, it. You really need to look for it. Like, going off it's not to- on RT News or anything. Going a little bit off topic. <laughs> I find it hilarious that people have all these conspiracy theories about a one world government of the UN and the World Health Organization. And I'm just like, mate, there is a transnational, there is a group of transnational Institutions that are subverting democracy, that are making the world poor, that are essentially running the world. The United Nations is not it. The World Health Organization is not it. It is the World Bank, it is the International Monetary Fund, it is the World Trade Organization. If the globalists would go on about this, I'd have more time for them. Mm-hmm. Sorry for the sidebar. <laughs> no, I love it. I'm loving it. Um, okay, so... Whew, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, we've we've identified the problem. So... Let's talk about your proposed solution, this mulch for survival. So what is mulch? Well, mulch is basically covering the soil. So you have organic mulch and inorganic mulch. I mean organic mulch. Yes. So like compost, like if you have a stand of grass and clover, that's a living mulch or like straw, like wood chips, like whatever you want. But the idea is in its most simplified terms, The only time you should ever see the soil is when you're planting or harvesting. So the principles, the five principles of soil health. Number one, keep the soil covered at all times. Number two, keep a diversity of plants in the soil. Number three, keep living roots always in the soil. Number four, minimize soil disturbance. Number five, add as much organic matter as you can. An organic mulch does all of these things. It protects the soil, but mulching is really, it's a win, win, win. Because once you have the soil covered with a nice thick mulch of organic matter, so A, the soil is protected. It's protected from the wind, it's protected from the rain. From the rain, you're not gonna have soil erosion to anywhere near the same extent. B, you're keeping in the moisture. So your crops will benefit. You're insulated from drought. You're also insulated from flooding because it's going to improve the soil because organic matter improves the soil structure and it can hold onto water and it will slow the... So you're insulating it from floods, you're insulating it from droughts, 
you're keeping down the pressure of weeds because the weeds are there to fill the bare soil. Nature abhors a vacuum and you leave a vacuum, it will put something into it. It's feeding the soil, long-term proper feeding the soil by feeding the life in the soil. It really is just... I I was thinking about this mulch, so... Um, I kind of think of it as compost, but it it's, you it's not think, really. It's like all the dead matter, like everything well, that should be is, on the ground, fall to the ground. Well, compost is the finished product of all those things. Okay. So you can produce compost and then mulch the soil with it, or you can just mulch the soil with your grass clippings, with your cut weeds, with whatever else, and they'll turn into compost. So, like, currently but we, I want to make yeah. the case particularly for living mulches, because on a large scale in a farm, you just can't produce enough compost to cover hundreds That's or thousands of acres. That's ridiculous. So what you need is you need cover crops and you need like undersown living mulches. So for example, say you're growing a crop of brassicas, like kales and cabbages and broccolis and what have you. Well, they are greedy crops that need a lot of nitrogen. So one of the best things you can do is after planting them to sow some clover around them, some low-growing type of clover, an annual type, like a subterranean clover or something. This will act like a mulch. It will cover the soil and keep the moisture in, keep the weeds down, whatever. But because it's a clover, it will also feed the nitrogen. It will flower, benefit wildlife. So really, when we're talking about mulch on a large scale, what we're talking about is living plants always in the soil. Think of... Think of a grassland. So a lot of environmentalists hate on eating meat, but frankly, the, from a purely environmental perspective, meat production is the best because you have this grassland that is completely mulched. There's, if you're doing it right, it's essentially a nature reserve. There's lots of life in it. So if you think about that principle, that you should have living plants in the soil, you should have the, plant, the soil always covered, you have to apply that to any farming situation. That might mean cover cropping, that might mean intercropping, it will mean lots of different things. But the principle is it's not enough just to cover the soil with dead plant material, you also have to have living roots in it and living plants above it. So you need that combination of living, dead and dying plant material covering the soil. So. And the roots in the soil actually potentially do more than the actual cut plant material on top of it. Oh yeah. Because they, when the plant dies, the roots will break down. And that's why a lot of weeds will come up in a compacted area. And they're actually slowly fixing the compaction because they will have a deep tap root. It will break up the compacted soil. And then when the plant dies, where the tap root was, you have this little pocket of compost that used to be the root, nice and loose and fertile. So I see a lot of people like advertising that they're no till or no dig farms. So how could you introduce the cover crops with this? So I don't know what like the time scale of growing like wheat well, or barley is. How long is the crop in the ground? And then is it for the majority of the year there's no crop there? Well, like on a, on a long, on a large scale, what you do is so there's an implement called a roller crimper. You can get different versions of this. You, a mulching mower will do the same job. But you have something on the front of the tractor that breaks up the, the plant matter and lays it on the ground. And then you have a special kind of cedar on the back called a no-till cedar that punches through the organic matter on the surface to get the seed into contact with the soil. Oh, yeah. So on a large scale, that's what you do. Now, 
Ireland isn't the best place for this. In America, this works wonderful because they have warm season grasses and cool season grasses. So each year you can have a rotation where you have one crop and one cover crop. But in Ireland, we only have one growing season. So it's crop or cover crop. So it's much less productive here. So what the best farmers in Ireland, like Thomas Fowley, tend to do is a min-till system where it's not completely no-till, but you only till when you have to. Okay, okay. And sometimes... Sometimes a compromise solution is the best one. And till is just removing the whole plant from the ground? No. Roots and stalk? No, No, till is turning the soil. Turning the soil, okay. Okay. So it's ploughing, is tilling. But you can open up the soil without turning it. So there's a handheld tool called a broad fork where it's got a little wooden platform with the tines set in an angle. You put the tines in the ground, step on the platform, that opens up the soil without turning it. That's a wonderful, wonderful invention because you can decompact the soil without breaking its structure. But so then, thinking about no-till, there's actually a book I want to plug. I think everyone should read this book. It's called The One Straw Revolution by, I think his name is Mansunobu Fukuoka. It's a Japanese guy (laughs) writing in like the 60s and 70s. And he had this absolutely brilliant system. He called it natural farming, but a lot of people call it do-nothing farming. So his thing, he didn't plow. Sounds good to me. He didn't weed. He didn't use fertilizer. He didn't make compost. He didn't do anything. He went out. So he had his rice in the ground. He went and harvested the rice, sowed the seed of the next crop underneath it, then cut down the straw of the rice and let it stand on top of the seed. The next crop comes up. He lets the weeds grow. Maybe he sows a green manure underneath it, then lets the weeds grow up and lets them act like a mulch. Then it comes harvest time. The the cycle comes again. He harvests the grain, cuts down the straw, gets the seeds under the straw. For a small scale, I think that is an absolutely brilliant method. For a large scale where you need machinery, well, you've got mulching mowers and roller crimpers and no-till seeders, and they're goddamn expensive, but they do the job. Yeah, I liked you were saying, like, tractors, the weight of dinosaurs are, like, crushing the... St- Not crushing just the- dinosaurs, <laughs> sauropods, like Brachiosaurus and... All- I don't know, I'm going through a bit of a Jurassic Park phase at the moment, and I looked up sauropods, I think they're, like, 100 tons, so maybe you might and need to adjust so- for that, because, like, a John Deere is, like, 2 well- tons. Well, no, they're... Actually, Maybe they're, like, the weight of, like, a you're Stego thinking, or you're something. You're thinking of a compact tractor that a small family No, I'm thinking of, like, a John Deere, like a big tractor. Well, there are tractors out now that when they have their full implements on them, they weigh the same as sauropods. What? And, yeah, there was actually a study that came out recently where they found that actually the same as the effect sauropods had on the land. These tractors are so big, they cause compaction, not only in the topsoil, but in the subsoil. And once the subsoil is compacted, there's not a lot you can do about that. I mean, there's a subsoil plow, but that's really doing a lot of damage. And it's just, you don't need tractors to be that heavy. This is another example of the bottleneck fucking everything up because they want to sell more and higher tech and better and more expensive tractors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are the tank manufacturers of World War Two. Have you II, seen Jeremy Clarkson's farm I, TV I ha- series? I haven't, but I've heard it's quite yeah, enjoyable. He like gets this massive tractor. Didn't he get a Lamborghini <laughs> yeah, tractor? Lamborghini. And then he couldn't fit it into the field, and all the farmers yeah. were just laughing oh, at him. Oh yeah, that's, it's so good. You should watch it. Yeah. So mulching. What else were we talking about? Large tractors, tilling. Is there anything else? Well, Most for survival. Mulching. 
Um, oh yeah. So that so where that phrase "march for survival" came from. In World War Two, they had the slogan "Dig for Victory" because they wanted people to have allotments and produce food in their gardens so they could feed the population so they could win the war. But okay, we know now that how bad tillage is. So now it's not a case of dig for victory, it's a case of mulch for survival. If we don't start mulching the whole earth, there's not going to be any oh, soil yeah, left yeah, and we're yeah, going to yeah. die. Yeah, yeah, this has just triggered my question that I had. So, like, I kind of see this mulching for survival as this, like, large composting pro- project. So, you know the way some places in... That takes... Earth, well, how, how do we get enough mulch to cover the land? Like, how cover can crops, a farmer... Cover crops, It's about not leaving the soil bare. That's what it's about. It's okay. about having diverse plants always in the soil and having the soil covered. Now, there is 100% space for composting. The small horticultural enterprise lives and dies by good quality compost. And there's a case to be made that the average farm should be smaller. Ireland has quite a small farm size because we had a very successful land reform program before, just before and just after independence. And Ireland is an agricultural powerhouse because small farms are more productive and have more space for nature. So we can say that our farms have gotten too big and this is the root of the problem. But even on a large farm, you can keep it mulched if you just keep plants always in the ground. A lot of times the soil will be left bare over winter. And that's just a catastrophe. I think it would be like really interesting experiment to grow like nitrogen fixing plants like legumes or something alongside barley or whatever these big this has cash been, crops. People have been experimenting with this since the 1700s. Okay. A lot of farmers do this. Like that's quite basic. That's why in America corn is rotated with soy because soy is a legume and fixes nitrogen. That's why they do that. Wait, what is with soy? Corn. Corn is with grown with soy. No, it, corn is grown. And then the soil is left bare. And then, then next year, put, soil yeah, is yeah, grown yeah, yeah, and then yeah, the soil yeah, yeah. is left they bare. They rotate around, but, okay. So the, the legumes fixing nitrogen thing, that's known. Okay. But it's the mindset. Like, there's so much bare ground everywhere. everywhere. Like, at any point in time, a huge proportion of the earth is bare, exposed soil as a result of agriculture. And that is, frankly, a catastrophic situation. I think everybody should be obliged to turn their back gardens into what you've done with your back garden. <laughs> no, because then no one will do it. Yeah, like lawns if, if, should if they, be banned. No more lawns. Well, no. You have to have like Lawn, a vegetable patch. Lawns can be great. Just mow it less. Yeah. Like if you just only mow your lawn once a year in September or only mow it a few times throughout the year, you well, will have a beautiful like a patch prairie. of my, yeah, yeah. 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 So I'm not against lawns. I don't like scalped lawns. Yeah. But I mean, if you scalp a path through your lawn or like a circle for a picnic, that's fine. It doesn't have to be all long grass. You can have some long grass, some short grass and some scalped grass. That's actually the best because you have a diversity of habitats. I love this theory of like the grass domesticating humans because we have put it everywhere and we're just like... Put so much is are so obsessed with our lawns and keeping them like yeah. meticulous. <laughs> I don't know if it's fair to say that grass domesticated us, but grasses definitely in, have enslaved us. We like think of our main staple crops: corn is a grass, wheat is a grass, rice is a grass. All of our main staple grains, they're all grasses. Think about what we do with any bit of spare land we want to enjoy, we put it under grass. And this this is a thing that plants do. Plants have various methods 
of tricking animals into re- promoting their reproduction. Think about a berry getting eaten by a bird and shot out somewhere far away. Think about so many different things. So grass has spread and conquered the earth even more than it already had by essentially tricking us into saving the seed and replanting it and weeding out everything else and putting in all of this manure and stuff to make it lovely for the grasses. And they really have enslaved us. I don't know if it's fair to say they've domesticated us because we domesticated ourselves. I don't like anything that takes our sense of agency away, but they have definitely enslaved us. Yeah. Yeah, we're enslaved by, like, the few crops but, that we now... Because apparently... Even then, yeah, even like, then, we've enslaved ourselves. A small group of people have enslaved the rest of the people by seizing control of the wealth, the land, the property of society and making everyone else dependent on working for them for their survival. So again, when we start talking about grass domesticated us or grass enslaved us, yes, it's true and it's important, but it distracts... it. It hides the real story that is, this is all about interrelations among humans. And it's all about interrelations between humans and different animals, different plants, different fungi, different whatever. But the cause of these problems, it's not that grass has outsmarted us and tricked us into spreading it across the world. Yeah, that happened. But the cause of the problem is that we have enslaved each other and we have tried to simplify and control the whole world to the advantage of a small few of us and it is destroying and degrading everything wow you're so well spoken i have to say um thank you yeah yeah there's there's some quotes here in your thing um that was quite the eco rant yeah nature doesn't waste um well, Plant nature does trees. waste. The waste just doesn't last long because something comes along to make use of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you say, like, embrace diversity. You cannot control nature and you certainly cannot defeat it. Everything has its place and there are only so many stones you can take out of a wall before it crumbles. You are a part of nature. You are not apart from it. But what can we do? First, let's ask what we cannot do. We can stop mowing the lawn down to the scalp. We can stop cutting the hedgerows back to the scut. We can stop tilling the soil to the point of disintegration. Most of all, we need to stop enclosing our lives away from the earth. Take a step back, let it happen and let it be. Which is just, I think it's and so... And then well, think about yeah. what you can do. That's the principle of first do no harm. We need and to stop meddling actually, in everything. Oh, mm, yes and no. Because the earth that we know has evolved with human beings. So our meddling is essential. If you get rid of human beings, a lot of ecosystems will collapse because we are an integral part of it. We just need to start being wiser about our land management. There's a great quote that I think sums up this principle of first do no harm. Tolstoy, best quote I've ever heard talking about charity. Imagine you are riding on a man's back and he is hunched over, his feet are covered in blisters, he's thirsty, he's hungry, he's sore and tired and you feel so bad for this man. You want to do everything you can to help him except get off his back. Wow, yeah. You're just a wealth of knowledge and quotes. That is especially dark, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Tolstoy yeah. is great. Ooh. Yeah, I always bust that one out when the topic turns to charity, because 
Yeah, it's like for some problems we're having today, it's like you could just lower the cost of living instead of like, but they'll never, they'll never change so like that. Well, again, this is the bottleneck. The small group of people that control our access to necessities of life, it's in their profit to raise the cost of living and it's in their profit to pay us less. So we're getting caught between what Trotsky called the scissors crisis. Which actually, I want to introduce the scissors crisis because this is quite important in the history of farming because farmers are very much facing the scissors crisis right now. So imagine a graph of farm gate prices and input prices and they start at the same like they start at you know 100 like farm what prices are farm gate prices farm what, gate prices what the farmers are paid for their produce at the farm right. gate so they both start at the same point and the input prices are going up and the farm gate prices are going down and if you look at it on a graph what you get is a pair of scissors oh, yeah. and the farmers are being cut between the blades of these scissors mm. now I'm not a big fan of Trotsky but I think that was a very very intelligent analogy <laughs> that was his as well was it yep not Tolstoy Trotsky not Trotsky <laughs> I much prefer Tolstoy to Trotsky now we won't go that far off topic <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to do more reading I need to buy so I have I. so many books it, already it's you like, need 200 so lifetimes yeah there's just so much stuff I want to read um, this is why it's so great to talk to others because like I can just like peek into your brain and get extract all this knowledge you're so passionate about it. Um, yeah, well, I don't intend to die of starvation, so. <laughs> so, yeah, you think, okay. I don't know. What do you think of, like, community gardens and doing I all this stuff gardens. at, like, a local Sanctuary level? Sanctuary Community and, Garden is one of my favourite places yeah. I've ever been to. Do you hang out over there? I used to when I first got into gardening. Yeah, I actually learned yeah. a lot from the people who were there. And that is one thing I would say for someone who's just getting into gardening for the first time. Join your local community garden. There are people there who've been doing it for years who will probably be very generous with their time and their knowledge. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, yeah, to, like, wrap up, you could give some advice on people who are interested in horticulture, getting into horticulture, working with the well, land. It's very much... Getting case, away from the computer. It's very much a case of learn by doing. So it's very hard if you don't have your own garden. Hence why an allotment or a community garden is great. Because it's very it's a very practical discipline there's only so much you can learn by reading you really have to learn by trial and error yeah yeah and the reading will help it will help you eliminate what definitely won't work before you start but you're still gonna have to go and do it and that's the only way you're gonna learn and just enjoy it gardening is one of the best things you can do it's great for your mental health it's great for your physical health it in the way that we're living, everything is instant gratification. Yes. And that is extremely unhealthy. Well, with gardening, you have slow-release satisfaction. You put in a lot of hard work, you wait patiently, and you get food out of it. You get this beautiful area, all this wildlife. You have this patient nurturing of other living beings, and that really is satisfaction that we don't get in modern life. Yeah, reaping what you sow, it's amazing. Well, thanks so much, Robert, for joining me. Um, do you have like an email or anything? Maybe I'll include it in the bottom. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know if I necessarily want to be contacted <laughs> by random people. <laughs> If anyone wants to contact me, I'll give you my detail. Okay, okay, cool. All right, well, thanks so much for your time. We'll leave it there. Thank you.